Supreme Court sweeps is well underway, and we have a doozy of a week. Obamacare was declared unenforceable. The court said to stop picking on Catholics, and we now know the difference between powder and crack cocaine. Yeah, the opportunities to learn from this high court are endless. Well, we unpack all of these cases in this week's debriefing of the law. We have a lot to unpack this week. We are in the middle of Supreme Court sweeps season, where the Supreme Court is coming out with all their great cases. They like to save them clear to the end of the term, right before they go off on vacation. It ups the ratings just a bit. Here this week to help us unpack the Supreme Court sweeps season is Mackenzie Smith. Mackenzie, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so excited to talk about this, as only a SCOTUS nerd would be. And that's why I like having you. I, I can count on you to fill, the, bring the, the nerd to the conversation, and so that is very much a needed aspect of it. I know you like to get your your uh, you know pull your sleeves up or whatever the phrase is, dig into these cases. So l- there's a lot to talk about with the Supreme Court. Now, are, are you? I'm just curious because do you follow this every day? Do you wake up today and say, "I wonder what the court is going to do do today"? Well, you know, so the court in advance, they do post on their website, which days are going to be their opinion days. And around this time of year, it kind of, it usually changes, I guess on a weekly basis. Um, I remember last year, I think it was last year where it extended into July because there was a backlog from COVID. So you never really know exactly when it's going to end. But I noticed last week that this, this week had two opinion days and now it looks like next week has three opinion days. So it looks like we are rapidly approaching the end. And when that happens, I do check every opinion day, at least. Now that's, that's um, what's going on. I just checked it the other day and this, this week, you're right. There were only two opinion days, Monday and Thursday. And next week only had one opinion. Day in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, that can't be right. They're gonna have to add some more work days. Stop golfing. You know, start coming in to do your jo- do your job because you got a lot of good decisions left to decide, and you can't just dump them all on one day. But you're saying you checked, and now they have three opinion days next week. So hey, it's gonna be another great week next week. Well, so far, no Briar retirement. Does that does that surprise you? Um. No, I mean, it could still happen. They do have a lot of work left to do. There's still a lot of cases that have to be decided, and a lot of them are big cases, as typically happens. So maybe he's just, you know, churning away in chambers and kind of like leaving that issue on the back burner. I don't think anybody would be surprised if we did get an announcement, but um, he's not retiring. You heard it from me first. He is not retiring. All right. Well, let's see. I mean, maybe he's pulling a, an RBG and he's just going to see it through. So we'll see, I guess. I, I think that's what he's going to do. I mean, I think he loves being a Supreme Court justice. He's good at it. Uh, he is, I call a free agent. I don't know how he's going to come out on these cases. And as we're going to talk about today, his opinion kind of surprises people. And uh, McKenzie, I know you and I have already talked about this in our planning for this podcast, but we already see a huge trend throughout all of these cases. So what is that trend, Mackenzie? So we are no longer living, and I don't, you know, this isn't surprising 
the, the first fact. But the second part is, so we're no longer living in the, the Kennedy era, right? right. Like the, in the Kennedy era, we had a lot of hot button cases decided five to four. More often than not, Justice Kennedy was a swing vote on a lot of those issues. And because of that, you, you know, you had um, some of the major uh, abortion cases. You had Citizens United. You had like these really uh, culturally significant and politically significant cases being decided by a very slim margin and, and some would argue by one single person. Right. Now, we all know that because uh, former President Trump had three appointments. We no longer have like a 5-4 court. It's a 6-3 majority conservative court. Um, so no or one would so be they say. Or so they say. I don't think, you know, most of the justices would probably say we are not political. It's not conservative or liberal. We are jurists, not politicians. Um, but, you know, in the in the public uh, viewpoint is that it's a 6-3 conservative majority court. But I think all of the major decisions that came out this week, at least the ones we're going to talk about today, they weren't even 6-3 decisions. The closest one was 7-2. And we got a couple that are like unanimous that came out this week on major issues. So I don't know if that's, and you give me your input, I don't know whether that's Chief Justice Roberts saying, like, we're going to make a statement here, whether that's just really the way that this new newly composed court is working together or what's going on. But we are very far from being a slim 5-4 court at this point. Have you ever heard the song Georgia On My Mind? Yeah, I love that song. Okay, good, good, good. So I actually asked Brooke that. She's our marketing person, a lot, a lot younger than me. And she goes, uh, what? You're just some old fogey there, you know, pull down your socks, Grandpa. Uh, but, um, yeah, she had no idea Georgia on my mind. I'm glad you did. At least you're closer to my generation. But I think it's court packing is on their mind. I think that's all they're thinking about. So I don't know if it's Breyer or the chief. But they are really working hard this term to, number one, not be partisan. So as you're going to point out over some of these cases, you got some weird alignments of justices. I think in one case, Thomas and Alito were going at it. Since when does that happen? I think Scalia might have even come back from the dead and disagreed with Thomas. I don't know. But these it's an interesting composition, a grouping of justices. They are very concerned about not appearing partisan. None of the, the nine want court packing to happen. I think that you see that in these 7281-9090 decisions. So let's jump right in. Let's start with... Yeah, maybe the only thing that transcends politics and partisanship is, you know, keeping your salary intact. I don't think that's yes. the bottom line from from this week's uh, decisions. All right, let's start with Terry v. United States. And I know you looked up that case. Go ahead. I, I don't know a lot about Terry v. United States because they're trying to say there's a difference between crack cocaine and powder cocaine. Uh, I don't know my cocaines, but I know McKenzie you were a former prosecutor. Surely you have your, you, you, you can help explain to me the difference and why that is an issue in this case. Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't, so I actually didn't, we had a drug unit, which I was not a part of and okay. I didn't, you know, so I wasn't a high level drug prosecutor and I don't know if you ever watched it's always sunny in Philadelphia, um, no. which is a hilarious show, but there's an episode where two of the characters <laughs> become addicted to crack and, you know, but they, they're like white middle-class, you know, re residents of 
the area where I live. And so they have no idea what they're even talking about. And so she just goes out on the street and she's like, hello, I would like to purchase a crack, please. Like that's, <laughs> that's like my level of understanding. Like I am no, not much better than you. But what I do know is that as part of the war on drugs in the eighties, um, in 1986, Congress passed a federal law called the anti-drug abuse act. And part of that law, there's a provision of that law that created federal sentencing guidelines for drug dealing, basically. And there was a disparity. If you were dealing cocaine, your sentence was one thing. But if you were dealing the same amount of crack cocaine, um, your sentence was usually 100 times as severe. Um, So that was part of this federal law. And you know, that that had gone on and many people were sentenced under that. And now, you know, things are starting to change. And in fact, in 2018, uh, Congress passed the First Step Act. And part of that act um, made higher level offenders, you know, higher level drug dealers who received mandatory minimum sentences eligible for resentencing, even if they had been sentenced, you know, a long time ago. This case dealt with an individual who was sentenced in 2008, but not subject to a mandatory minimum. He was a lower level offender, um, still sentenced to over 15 years in jail, but not a mandatory minimum. So the issue was was, you know, whether the that provision of the First Step Act, which uh, permitted resentencing, applied to this category of lower-level offenders, and the court unanimously said, no, it doesn't. Okay, so uh, as I understand it, the old law treated powder cocaine different than crack cocaine. I have no idea why they are different or, or not. That, that, that's probably not outside of the, the, the purview of this podcast, but they did treat them differently. And uh, is it crack cocaine was treated more harshly than powder cocaine? Was that how it worked? Correct. Okay. Correct. And so this person received a harsher sentence and he wanted it to be reduced with this First Steps Act. And the Supreme Court said, no, there's three, this, this act of, uh, has three tiers of violations and if you fell within tier one or tier two you could get a resentence but if you fell in tier three well according to i believe it was a sotomayor she said it's sloppy writing i mean congress was sloppy congress probably meant to apply or or, or allow all three different tiers uh but they because of their sloppy writing it wasn't uh, provided for and so it was a 9-0 decision and they said no we're not going to um allow you to get a resentence what is your takeaway from that case you know i mean i think this is why it's really good for you know, everyone to read and try to understand what the Supreme Court does. And, you know, you see headlines like, you know, the court, you know, strikes down part of criminal justice reform or the court refuses to apply criminal justice reform. And it's, you know, it's so much more nuanced than that. And I think it's really important for us all to have, you know, a better understanding of what the court actually does, because this was a nine to zero decision. And the the question in the case, the issue was one of statutory interpretation. Like this wasn't a constitutional case. This was the court saying, okay, we have this disagreement about what this federal law means. And we're going to tell you based on our canons of statutory construction and the way we've always interpreted statutes for 250 years, what this statute means. And if people don't like it, 
they can go change the statute. So, you know, the result is super disappointing to a lot of people who believe in criminal justice reform and who think that the 1986 provision was like totally, you know, inappropriate to say the least. And, you know, there are many stronger words that people use. And that's, you know, I guarantee you that there are people on the Supreme Court who believe that as well, personally. But the issue in the case, what the court's not allowed to do is say that. They they can only address the issue before them. And I think Justice Sotomayor is correct. Like, you know, this was probably sloppily written. um, And unfortunately, you know, that's a problem for Congress to fix. Um, You know, that the sentencing guidelines in this case that were in effect at the time were zero to 30 years. And the sentence imposed was squarely within the guidelines. And that doesn't make it, you know, morally right what happened. But legally, it was a legal sentence. And legally, even under the First Step Act, it's not eligible for resentencing. So major bummer, right? But the, the, the Supreme Court is not the vehicle that can kind of address that. Injustice. Yeah, I found it interesting that they were basically blaming Congress on sloppy work and, and sloppy writing. And, and my thought is, uh, and I think Sotomayor said, yeah, hey, send it back to Congress and they can fix it. Like, come on, who are you kidding? You can't get Congress to agree on anything. I don't think they're going to go ahead and fix this legislation. But nonetheless, uh, hey, we'll, we'll see how that comes out. Again, this was a 9-0 decision. Kind of highlights the court's you know, approach to trying to find unanimity uh, in, these different, in these various cases. They, they want to appear not to be uh, partisan. All right, the next case up from this last week that I want to talk about is a uh, is a huge one. California v. Texas. This was the Obamacare uh, case, and I, I found this case to be fascinating. I, uh, I, in fact, this is the fourth. I've been uh, c- categorizing, you know, the, these uh, cases as they, as they come down. You know, Obamacare one was the case of the phantom tax, where Chief Justice John Roberts upheld the, the Obamacare, um, uh, the Affordable Care Act, saying it's not an unconstitutional mandate; it's just simply a tax. So he saved Obamacare. That's Obamacare one. You had Obamacare two, Hobby Lobby, finding your corporate religion, where because I. Apparently, God told them, we don't want you to follow the Affordable Care Act. They got out of that. And so I guess it's good to be a Hobby Lobby. Then you had Obamacare <laughs> 3, you know, late night at the Roxy or late night at the, the, the high court. Justice Scalia was on fire with his roast-like dissents in Obamacare 3. He called the majority opinion there jiggery-pokery and pure applesauce. I think you can agree with me, uh, Mackenzie, that if you are calling another jurist their legal acumen, you're describing it to a fruit byproduct that is not a good thing. Uh, That's what he did. He called the uh, majority opinions pure applesauce. Now we get to Obamacare 4, which I'm going to call Standing Strikes Backs. So just kind of lay out in your (laughs) words what this case was all about. California v. Texas. What was the issue in in this case? Okay. So as you mentioned... Back in 2012, ancient history, um, well, before 2012, since Obamacare was enacted um, in the couple years before that, there was what's commonly referred to as an individual mandate. And essentially, like, you had to buy health insurance. And if you didn't have health insurance, then you had to pay a penalty. And um, that 2012, so that got challenged because people were saying, like, you can't, like, Congress doesn't have the power to just, like, 
impose a penalty. And so that first case, the Sebelius case in 2012, was whether it's a tax or not. And this is the case when conservatives started hating Chief Justice Roberts. I, was, he, I remember <laughs> the day that happened. I remember the day the decision came down. Yes. Oh, yeah. So that was, you know, a watershed and conservatives starting to hate Roberts. Liberals had hated them, by, hated him, by the way, since two years prior when he joined the majority in Citizens United. So, you know, for the past nine years, Roberts can't really win. Like everyone so, just, you know, has a, a reason why they hate him. But so, so basically, because I want to get your opinion on this since you brought it up. Uh, Obamacare won. You're bringing up these horrible nightmares. This is the case of the phantom tax. <laughs> you just brought it back up again. It, it was Roberts right. In other words, is it a tax? Can you be taxed for not buying something? If you go to Walmart and you put all the different, I assume you shop at Walmart. I don't know. But if you were to put all your different items in your basket, are you paying tax on the things that are in your basket or on the things you left on the shelf and that you didn't buy? I mean, how does taxation work? Because Robert says you can be taxed on the things you don't buy. I mean, like, I totally understand. <laughs> yeah, but I think it was, you know, commercial one for activity, the good guys. right? <laughs> right. Okay. Score one for the good guys. Fine. Well and good. But it all is of no moment because, you know, once the court ruled that the individual mandate was constitutional, right. was permissible as a tax, Congress said, Nana, 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 we're going to make the penalty zero. Okay, so let's go there. Congress then made the penalty zero, and now we have this case, which basically the issue is if you have a mandate, which is a word that we've heard a lot in the past year and a half, if I'm you shuddering. have a mandate from the government, but there's no penalty for not following the mandate, is it a if a mandate falls in the woods when right, nobody's right, right. around here, is it still a mandate? Like, what's the point? And I think in the lower court, in the Fifth Circuit, um, that court said, you know, Congress doesn't have the power to issue standalone commands. They can't just say, like, everybody has to do this. That's not, like, what Congress does. So do we have to strike that down now that the penalty is zero? And if so, does that require the entire rest of the law to be stricken down as well because it's so central to the purpose right. and the execution of the Affordable Care Act as a whole? So the issue is they this this tax that was in the, the Affordable Care Act, they took it from whatever it was, and by the way, I got it, that was imposed against me, uh, so I know exactly <laughs> what it was, but nonetheless, um, they took that tax and they put it to zero dollars. And so the issue is, is a tax of zero dollars, is that still a tax? Is, is that a is it really requiring you to do anything? Is there any enforceability to a zero tax? Now, Mackenzie, I recommended, the court did not take me up on this. I recommend, I recommend they do the toddler test. You know, you know, you know, you know where I'm going with this? Let's say you, you tell your toddler, hey, you know what? Here are the cookies. If you don't take a cookie, but if you do, nothing is going to happen to you. You'll just enjoy the sugary goodness of that cookie. Do you think your toddler is going to eat that cookie? Yeah, I mean, my my toddler is gonna eat ten cookies. <laughs> right. And so, is there any teeth to this tax that is zero dollars? So, Mackenzie, how does that actually impact how this case was decided? The fact that you had this penalty, if you will, this tax that was zero. Yeah. Well, I mean, the world may never know because the court didn't reach the merits of the case. 
So I think, you know, we, we're never going to know what these justices. Well, I guess we know what Alito thinks. Right, right. Because he dissented and, and Neil Gorsuch, I guess. But in terms of the seven justice majority, like we will never know. I mean, we can make some educated guesses based upon the prior Obamacare cases. But yeah, this was a case that was decided on standing. And, you know, the plaintiffs in this case were uh, the state of Texas and I think some other states that had Republican leaders, as well as two individuals who didn't want to buy health insurance, which I guess neither of them was you because I know I would know by now, but right. they went to federal court and said, like, this is unconstitutional. And it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court basically says, you know, hey, guys, no harm, no foul. If you're not harmed by this law, if you are taxed in the amount of zero dollars because you failed to comply with this law, that's not harm. And you need harm in order to have standing to sue. And you just don't have it here. So let's unpack it. For you non-lawyer listeners, uh, you have to have standing to get into federal court. What does that mean? That means that you have been injured in some way by the defendant that can be redressed with a favorable court uh, opinion, court order. And so uh, stated another way, if there is no credible threat of enforcement, so there's nothing that's being enforced against you, you don't suffer any harm. And so you, you lack standing. And so the issue in this case was, can a penalty of $0 really ever be enforced? And the reality is, no, you. If it's zero dollars, there is no enforcement. So you, there is no credible threat of enforcement. So now all that Obamacare is is this law. I don't. I don't even want to call it a law. It's just simply this insurance program that you can have that you can take advantage of. But if you don't want to take advantage of it. There is no penalty for that. And so uh, now if you went back to oral argument, the, the, the litigators were saying, look, it's about the carrot. You've got to have this tax. It is the carrot that encourages people to get the, the insurance. Well, maybe now we are to the point where because all these businesses are providing this insurance, you no longer need that carrot. People will just get this insurance because they need to get the insurance. And if they don't want to get the insurance, then they don't have to. So maybe that's where we are right now. But I think for the next 10 years or so, we're going to see if Obamacare can exist when there is no carrot forcing people to get the insurance. Um, but that is uh, the 7-2 decision of California v. Texas. As I call it, standing strikes back. All right, any yeah, other thoughts I on mean, that? <laughs> well, you know, I think you're right. And this is an area of the law that, you know, impacts so many people in this country and it's so complicated. And, you know, you hear people on various sides of the argument talking about the, the cost of healthcare in America. And I think, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a really interesting time to be having this debate, right? Because we just had a global pandemic and we are now a country with you know, some one of the most successful vaccination programs right. in the world. And I am benefiting from that personally. And, you know, it can be done. And we still live in a 
in a society, in a country where you know we do have better access to sometimes life-saving healthcare than people in a lot of other parts of the world. And so, you know, we are all super cognizant of that right now. But on the other side of the coin, you know, the cost of healthcare here is astronomical compared to most other places in the world. And you know, these are issues that the Supreme Court's not going to opine about, right? Oh, they need to. It underscores all of these, this, I think Alito called it the epic, epic affordable care act trilogy. Like it, you know, these kind of policy issues underscore the court's these, all of these cases. And so when the court comes out and says like, you know, you don't have standing, I mean, sure. Like article three requires that there be harm, but at the same time, if everyone agrees that Congress can't issue standalone commands, but everyone also agrees, or at least seven justices of the court agree, that when Congress does issue standalone commands, there's literally nothing anyone can do about it. Like, where does that leave us? Right, right. Well, here's where it leaves us. And have you ever seen these memes where this guy is sitting at some table with a sign that says, convince me? So it'll state some position, and then it'll say, convince me I'm wrong. Have you seen that meme? I sure have. Okay, I have no idea where that's from. It's probably some kind of cultural connection that I'm missing. But nonetheless, let's play that game. I am going to say, because the court said Obamacare is unenforceable, Obamacare is now dead. I mean, it's been overruled. It has effectively effectively been overruled because it is unenforceable. So convince me I am wrong. Well, I mean, in terms of the mandate, I agree with you. I, I can't convince you that you're wrong. I mean, how can you? And, and this is the issue that Justice Thomas, I think, raised at oral argument. He said, you know, if the government says, OK, there's a mask mandate, but there's no penalty for not wearing a mask. Is there a mask mandate? Like, what is the meaning of the word mandate? And what, you know, what does that do in terms of people's confidence in their government if the government is issuing commands that have no teeth. Like, what are we, what is it, you know, these lends itself to some very fundamental questions about the role of government in our lives. Um, So I can't convince you you're wrong about that part. I mean, I know that Obamacare still exists and there's a lot of provisions to the law that aren't the mandate. Um, But, you know, I think it's, it's been, what, 11 years at this point and it's, it's an example of how sometimes, you know, trying to forge the middle path between, you know, public health care and, and, and not, and, you know, private insurance, it, it, sometimes you end up straddling the fence and, it is you know, interesting. these kinds of things happen. It is interesting. And I, they, they let it stay on the books to just see what happens to it. And then maybe Congress might pick it up in a couple of years if it's failing. I don't know. But uh, at least right now, it is unenforceable. Uh, it is just simply, a, I think, a, a an insurance program that one can take advantage of if one wants to do that. All right. Let's move on now to what I think was the shocker of the week, Fulton v. City of Philadelphia. Now, Mackenzie, we have been on this podcast several times, so I am on record as to saying I had no idea how the court was going to come out on this case. I can see the court coming out either way. I can see the court coming out on the side of the city, 
I can see the court coming out on the side of the Catholic Church. So the issue in Fulton was this Catholic organization that was involved with foster care placements. Well, the city of Philadelphia realized that this was a Catholic organization and Catholics do have religious beliefs against same-sex marriages. And so to the, the, the city said, well, then we can't allow you to participate in this um, foster care program because in order to participate as a foster care agency organization, you cannot discriminate based upon a sexual orientation. So that was the issue that was teed up in this case. So Mackenzie, first off, I just want to know, were you kind of with me on this? We had no idea which side the court was going to come on. Yeah, no, I, I I am totally with you on that. And I think this is, you know, and you know that I love Chief Justice Roberts's writing and I find him particularly persuasive. And this is a great example of one of those cases where, you know, you read all the briefing and you read all the analysis and you're like, oh my gosh, this could really go either way. What a hot button case. And then when you read the court's opinion, you're like, Oh, obvious. <laughs> like it doesn't even seem like a close call. And that to me is, you know, very, it's something, you know, I would aspire to in my legal writing to have the people reading it say, oh, she's so obviously right. What a smart person. So, um, but that's, that was the impression I had when reading this decision. I thought it was very persuasively written. Obviously, the fact that we have another nine to zero decision makes a huge statement. This act, I actually, while I was reading this, I took a pause and I went back and reread Masterpiece Cake Shop okay. um, from a couple years ago. And once I put the two together, it was like, oh, this is obviously like where the court is on free right. exercise. Like, I don't know why I ever had any question in my mind, but again, that's that was after reading the opinion. So. Well, and, that, and that was a shocker. It was a 9-0 decision, a case where most experts were like, we have no idea which side the court's going to come down on this case. To then end up with a 9-0 opinion really is amazing. And I, I agree with you. Looking back on it, it really was a simple issue. Now, I, This was my area of litigation. This was my area where I specialized in. And so here's how the law works. If you have a governmental, governmental regulation, a law, and it burdens someone's religious beliefs and practice, then it used to be pre-1990 that that law had to pass what's called strict scrutiny. In other words, the government had to have a real good reason, a compelling reason to even have that law in the first place. And then the law has to be narrowly tailored to achieve that really important interest. All right, so this law was, a, so you know, this, for example, in the Yoder case, you had the, the Amish, and there was a law that said you, if your child is under the age of 16, they have to be in, in education. They have to be in school. Well, the Amish said, no, we, we have this religious belief that our kids should be on the farm at age 14. So there was a conflict. Well, the court applied strict scrutiny and struck down um, this law. Well, in 1990, that all changed with a case called Employment Division v. Smith. That opinion was written by Scalia. And Scalia said, if a law is neutral and generally applicable, you apply rational basis and not a strict scrutiny. So in other words, let's say you had an anti-drug law that said, don't do drugs. Drugs are bad. Both powder and crack versions of cocaine, it's all bad. You can't do it. Okay, McKenzie. You cannot join the first church of crack cocaine to get around the nation's anti-drug laws. That's not how the law works. So according to Scalia, if the law is neutral and generally applicable, you got to follow it. 
All right, so that 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 was the employment division v. Smith case. Well, so in this particular case, is this law neutral and generally applicable? Well, there is this there is this catch in this law, and I missed it, but Roberts obviously knew it was there. And this is what is if there is a system of individualized exemptions. So, it, in other words, if the law has in itself some provision that some administrator or some state official could say, you know what, we have the discretion not to apply this law wherever we want. That's called a system of individualized exemption. So if you have that, then by definition, by definition, the law is not neutral and generally applicable. And so Robert said, look, look at this law. It says it right there. It says that if you want to be a foster care organization, you cannot discriminate based upon sexual orientation unless the director in his sole discretion decides it doesn't apply to you. It's like, what? That is that you can't put that into law. So that is a system of individualized exemptions. So the course that we apply strict scrutiny and this law fails as applied to um, uh, this Catholic organization. So does that, does that make sense? It does. And yeah, when you read it, it totally makes sense. And I think a couple points, um, you know, number one, the city's policy, basically, it was a, it was a resolution by the city council, and it, the resolution condemned, quote, discrimination that occurs under the guise of religious freedom, end quote. So problem one is you're really putting out there in your policy that you have, uh, you know, a very strong personal objection, you find certain religious beliefs odious, which totally fine. Like you're allowed to find other people's religious beliefs odious. This is America, right? You're allowed to do that. But the question is, since this is a government policy, whether the government can, you know, force, or, or I guess in this case, terminate this contract. And the issue with that is the city's stated purpose for enacting this policy, obviously they can't come out and say, like, we really hate that the Catholic Church, you know, doesn't agree with marriage equality, which obviously, you know, is true, but they can't come out and say, like, oh, that was the only basis for this policy. So that their their basis for the policy was well, we want to maximize the number of foster placements. We want to maximize the number of kids who get put into good homes. And with this organization, they're totally curtailing all same-sex couples from being foster parents. So that reduces the number of placements. And Roberts goes like, LOL, no. (laughs) By terminating the contract, you're terminating, you're reducing the number of placements because you're terminating, like, Say this, the Catholic Services Agency does 100 placements a year, okay, and maybe 25 of those would be to same-sex couples. So is it better to let them do the 75, or is it better to let them do zero and terminate their contract? So your basis, it doesn't even make sense. Like, what you're saying is the purpose of this policy— doesn't even make sense and certainly fails under strict scrutiny. So, you know, you're allowed to totally hate, you know, the Catholic Church's doctrine on this. And by the way, I looked it up and 70% of American Catholics agree with marriage equality. So, you know, it it doesn't even like the church's policy doesn't even align with their, you know, (laughs) adherence policy. But that's like if the church wants to continue believing that and saying that's their doctrine, like that's 
up to the church and not the government of the city of Philadelphia. And people can choose, like, do I want to be Catholic? Do I not want to be Catholic? Do I want to be Catholic and petition the church to change and, and realize that, you know, this is okay. You know, that's all stuff that's kind of, you know, stuff that's going on and stuff that's important. But in terms of this particular policy, it's neither here nor there. Like the policy discriminates. The policy doesn't even serve its own stated goal. The policy is unconstitutional. That is a fascinating take and comparing that to Masterpiece where it's clear that the um, the defendant in these cases are really targeting someone's religious beliefs. And I think the court is saying that's not acceptable under our laws. We have a First Amendment free exercise of religion, whatever it means. If we get wind that really you're saying we don't like your religion and we're going to attack it, that's not going to sit well with this court. I will also note, not that this was dispositive because these are Supreme Court justices. It is interesting to note, I think by my last tally of the nine Supreme Court justices, seven are Catholic. And so that has to speak to some issue there. Really, you're going to go in front of a body where seven of them are Catholic and you're going to try to pick on the Catholic Church's religious beliefs. I'm not sure that's a good setup uh, for your argument. But nonetheless, uh, I'm sure that it did not sway uh, the court's opinions. Any final thoughts before we jump to Cargill v. Nestle? Well, I think the, the you know, addendum to this decision um, would be Alito, you know, got we got to mention it, it was a nine to zero decision, but Alito wrote separately concurring only in the judgment. It's super salty, 77 page concern, concurrence. And, um, you know, he basically says the whole judicial restraint thing and not overruling employment division versus Smith. Like I'm not down with that. We need to overrule. We need to reach that issue. We need to overrule that case. Um, you know, this court is not going far enough to protect religious Liberty. And he basically says that the majority issued a wisp of a decision that leaves religious Liberty in a confused and vulnerable state. Those who count on this court to stand up for the first amendment have every right to be disappointed as am I. And that is like about Preach as big Alito. of a burn as you can get from a Supreme Court justice, which is, you know, he's concurring. I mean, this isn't even a dissent. This is a case in which the court ruled in favor of religious liberty, and Alito is still so angry well, about them not going far enough. Let's count up the justices. I told you employment v. De, employment division v. Smith was the big case. Should it be overturned? Three justices were in that dissent you just mentioned. You had um, Alito wrote it, and Thomas and Gorsuch joined that dissent. So you have three are definitely in favor of overturning Employment Division v. Smith. Amy Coney Barrett wrote a concurring opinion joined by Kavanaugh in its entirety, where she said Employment Division, Employment Division v. Smith is bad law and should be overturned. But she didn't say, we don't know what would replace it. And so we're not going to go there just yet. So you have two chomping on the bit. That's five. Five justices are really chomping at the bit to overturn Employment, Employment Division v. Smith. I guess the takeaway from that is if you are going to bring a free exercise claim to the Supreme Court, just know five justices – they think strict scrutiny should be applied to your claim. Uh, and so that's, a, that's, that's pretty comforting if you like religious liberty. All right. Uh, fascinating case. Again, no, even though we kind of, I got, I got really excited about this case, 9-0 decision, that's quite impressive from the court. All right, go ahead and explain the issues in Cargill because I think this is a fascinating case. Yeah, so this is a, a pair of cases, Cargill versus Doe and I think Nestle versus Doe. 
And this is another, like the first case we talked about, this is a statutory case. So we're not dealing with, you know, constitutional issues here, but it has to do with certain, and I'm using this term very loosely, certain business practices of Nestle Cargill, which is one of the, you know, biggest companies in the world and they own so many brands, not to go out on a tangent, but just, you know, we can all Google them, but among others, you know, obviously Nestle, the Nestle brands, Starbucks, dozens of bottled water companies, including Perrier, San Pellegrino, Gerber Baby Food, tons of candy brands like Smarties, Hot Pockets, Purina Dog Food, Toll House, obviously, Maybelline, Garnier, and somehow Giorgio Armani Fragrance. Um, so these are huge companies, okay? Right. And they do business all over the world. And there's this federal law in the United States back from the 1700s called the Alien Tort Statute that basically says foreign citizens who are abroad can sue in United States federal courts for serious violations of international law. Now, the caveat to that is that the violation has to occur in the United States. Um, and here there was a dispute about whether the conduct at issue occurred in the United States. And the conduct was really, really bad. Like no one's disputing that it was totally abhorrent. Um, the plaintiffs in this case were six citizens of Mali, a Northern African country who were enslaved as children on cocoa plantations in the Ivory Coast, where they were deprived of safety and food and beaten with whips and tree branches. Like this is stuff that's happening. And right. uh, somehow this slavery was categorized as a business practice. Um, just putting that out there, this is important for people to know. And, you know, obviously the enslavement occurred in Ivory Coast. It didn't occur in the United States. So the issue was, can these citizens of Mali sue Nestle and Cargill in federal court in the United States for okay. damages? And, you know, the answer is no. Interesting. And the, right. The Why? Ninth Circuit was reversed. And the Ninth Circuit had ruled, you know, these companies do business in the United States and they were making major operational decisions within the borders of the United States. But the court basically said, and again, this is an eight to one opinion. So this isn't even a close call in the court's mind. Um, the court said, you know, that's that's not what the statute says. Um, and that's not the conduct that's being complained of here. So while obviously we agree with you know, that the conduct was totally abhorrent and criminal and a horrible violation of international law. Like we just don't have jurisdiction under Article three to address these claims in I'm, federal court in the United States. I'm not sure I understand the court's reasoning. I'm pretty sure I don't like the court's outcome here. Um, but they're saying basically there's some abhorrent things going on outside of the United States, by United States companies. In other words, if the decisions were made here in America, the corporate decisions, hey, let's use child slave labor, some violation of the of the law, why can't they be sued? But in this case, they're saying, no, under, under this particular statute, uh, we're not going to extend our law. And it was 8-1 decisions, so apparently it's a, there's a groundswell support behind that idea, but interesting. Interesting case. All right. Well, that is uh, our, a busy week at the Supreme Court. A lot of fascinating cases. And as you pointed out, next week, 
promises to be even better. Three opinion days, so it's going to be a real busy week next week. If you want to get daily updates, I do a daily update every day the Supreme Court announces something major. Uh, so you can go to our YouTube channel, go to our Facebook page, and you can get our daily take on what is going on at the Supreme Court. But Mackenzie, I would like to end it on a wacky case note, because obviously we're talking about the Supreme Court, major important decisions, but there's another side to the law that's less serious. And so I'm just wondering, were there any cases this last week that stood out to you as being as fitting our wacky case description? Yeah, there's a few. I mean, I, I know we had mentioned earlier the um, or pr- prior to recording the uh, child support case. Right, right. Um, which, you know, disgruntled exes are like a subject that's like near and dear to my heart. I always love the drama and talking about that stuff. So I guess there was um, a guy who was making his final child support payment because his child had recently turned 18. And I, I think he may have harbored some lingering resentment over the divorce decree because he paid that final child support payment to his ex-wife. I think it was a truckload of, what was it? 80,000 pennies. Right. 80,000 pennies they dropped on this person's lawn. I can't even imagine. How, how would you even handle 80,000 pennies? What bank gave him 80,000 pennies? Like, I mean, I guess they have to. I don't know, but it just seems like... Yeah, he went to, I mean, he had to rent the dump truck, which I wouldn't even know where to go to rent a dump truck. Like, he went to a lot of trouble and expended a lot of time and energy just, like, expressing his malcontent. So, you know, I mean, probably not, like, the most productive use of time and energy, but if it's legal tender... I guess it counts as a payment. Interesting. Yeah, I've actually heard some cases where someone tried to pay their fine. They went to City Hall and just paid it all in pennies. It is legal tender, but man, that's a that's an it's an annoyance and definitely sends a statement, I guess, on what you think about that person that they have to deal with pennies. I don't even put pennies in my pocket anymore. I'm just curious, Mackenzie. Last time you paid with cash, someone gave you some change. I am assuming. Did you actually count that change? No, I usually drop it in, um, there, you know, there's usually like either a tip jar or like a little, um, collection jar for one charity or another. And I always, I feel like I drop it in there. Um, there actually though, if you, I don't know how it is out in the Midwest, but there are roads in, not that I know of in Pennsylvania, but there's one specific, well, the, I think it's a garden state parkway in New Jersey where like they still have the baskets where you have to. Like, instead of having a ticket that you take when you get on the highway, you have to, like, pull over every however many miles and, like, throw coins into this basket for your toll. Right, right, right. So I do tend to keep quarters because that that road is on our way to the beach. So sometimes I have to like chuck these quarters into the basket and usually some of them fall on the ground and then I'm like scrambling looking for more quarters or whatever. But um, other than that, yeah, I don't, I don't keep my change. So for the record, we are not in favor of paying child support via pennies. All right. I know you had one other case that really caught your interest. Yeah, so we've talked about uh, a while ago the Tom Girardi, Erica Girardi saga. Oh, and I just, am captivated. 
we, you know, refresher, Tom Girardi is a very prominent, was a very prominent attorney out in California. He was um, the attorney in the Aaron Brockovich case that led to the movie. And, you know, he's a plaintiff's attorney, very, very successful and made millions and millions of dollars and led a lavish lifestyle, married a much younger woman who then became one of the real housewives of Beverly Hills. And their, you know, lifestyle was documented on the show. She's also a performing artist. I think she released a song a couple of years ago called It's Expensive to Be Me. So I would like to mark that as Exhibit A um, for reference. Yeah. So uh, as it turns out, I guess there's you know, some credible allegations that he's been misappropriating client funds from settlement. And anyone who's a practicing attorney knows that that's like, you know, a cardinal, if not Quick the number one. To yeah, that's just, you know, aside from being theft, you know, right, it's, right. it's you're going to get disbarred. So they're now getting divorced. She says she had no idea. Other people say she knew everything. And the thing that happened this week was there is a Hulu documentary that came out about this drama called The Housewife and the Hustler. I watched it. And after it was released on Hulu, Erica Girardi's attorneys moved to withdraw their representation. So that's kind of like a mystery as to what's going on there and what kind of twists and turns this case is going to take. And it, you know, it is kind of wacky. Like there's a lot of drama. The real housewives are always kind of wacky, but there's serious, um, a very serious undertone to this case. And if you watch the documentary, you'll see like, you know, a, a lot of people who were plaintiffs and who were injured. I mean, some of the um, victims or the alleged victims at this point, I guess, were um, people who lost loved ones in plane crashes, who came within inches of their life in house fires and, you know, really horrible tragedies that happened to people. And they, you know, had their cases settle and never saw any proceeds and are now alleging that those pro- settlement proceeds were misappropriated. And so there is a serious, you know, very serious right. um, foundation to this case. And I don't want to make light of that for sure. But it also just has a lot of, um, you know, tabloid worthy aspects yes. to it as well. And I would, you know, I think that the Hulu documentary is pretty interesting. Hulu has been putting out some interesting legal content. We had the, the free Britney documentary okay. from the New York times, um, that came out on Hulu a couple months ago that I, I thought was extremely well done. And, and now this, so, you know, there's a, a fun way to keep up with these, you know, legal goings on as well. Hey, you had the final word. Thank you so much for bringing the a little bit of a perspective of the. We went all the way from the U.S. Supreme Court to Housewives of was not Beverly Hills, but wherever it's at. Um, Fascinating journey that we took, but it's it's kind of fun watching the observing the law. And next week promises to be also a great week. So try to get some work done next week, Mackenzie. Don't be glued to your whatever sites you go to to get your Supreme Court news, though I do know for at least three days next week, we are going to be paying attention. So have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
please give us a five-star review. We need your love to help us continue highlighting the funnier side of the law. I want to give a special shout-out to our Vice President of Operations, Wendy Oster, without whom this entire operation would be a mess. Sean Wynn and 15.5 Features for making me sound way better than I actually do. Brooke Bolin for spreading the good word about us. And Ryan Kuhn and Paul Kuhn of Triplicity Marketing for our technical and computer support. Thank you.